Hope you'll take advantage of that opportunity. You know that we've been doing these because... How many of you were at the dedication prayer on Wednesday out at the new property? Wasn't that an exciting evening that we spent? And it's folks, they're, t- they're still telling us October. That's only six months away when we're going to move into that new building. So we need a lot of you to find your place of service. It's going to be a state-of-the-art facility. We need a lot of hands uh, to welcome the new folks that are going to come and be a part of our church family. So I hope you're looking for your place to serve um, when we are, so that when we get there, we have the help that we need. Uh, if you have your Bible this morning, we're going to Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to be looking at verse 21 to begin with, reading all the way to the end of that chapter. If you didn't bring your Bible with you, these references will be on the screen behind me. You can follow along that way. While you're turning, let me say a couple of things to you. I know at the 9 o'clock service, the migration of the snowbirds has begun, and a lot of people are returning home, and they were saying, we'll see you next fall. And if that's the case for you, make sure you know where we are when you come back next fall, because we will be in our new building by next October. And so check that out. And and while I'm speaking to you about worship, though, something very different happens here at High Point next, uh, next weekend. Normally, like all churches, we have two worship services on Sunday morning. But next weekend, we're all going to worship together on Saturday night at 6 p.m. Here's the reason we're doing that. Children's ministry, the whole thing. The reason we're doing that is because next weekend is the Ironman race that they do on the ridge here every year. And uh, so just about the time that we normally are trying to make left turns and get into this parking lot, hundreds, if not thousands, of bicyclists are coming right down Burns Avenue. Now, those of you who have been here for a while have lived that nightmare with us. It is logistically impossible for people to get into this place. And we dealt with that for a few years, just trying to slow things down, start a few minutes later. But then a couple of years ago, we had a near-fatal accident out on Burns. There was a lot of repercussions from that. And we just decided that we were not going to do that any longer. So, next weekend is the Ironman bike race. So, rather than worship on Sunday morning, we're going to worship on Saturday night at 6 p.m. Everybody that heard me say next Saturday at 6 p.m., raise your hand. Okay, no excuses now. Next Saturday night, 6 p.m. And by the way, tell everyone you can think of because I know everybody doesn't make it every week, so they'll be here. If you're new to High Point... Hang around after church today if you want to learn more about the church, how you can serve, what we believe, and the leadership. Right after we dismiss this morning, we do our connection track in the back. We provide a meal. There's child care. And if you'd like to join us for about an hour to learn more about the church and how you can be involved, I'd love for you to do that. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they too will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Not long ago, um, 
well, it's been a couple of years ago, I was reading an article, I was scrolling the internet, and I came across an article with the title, The Nine Craziest Reasons People Were Divorced in 2016. Now, here's the one that caught my eye. Apparently, there was a woman who divorced her husband after she learned that he did not care for the film Frozen. She said to him, If you can't understand what makes this movie a great movie, there is something wrong with you as a human being. I thought somebody needs to tell her to let it go. (laughs) There you go, some bad Disney humor to start the service off this morning. Now, now there there were eight others, but that's the only one I can tell you in church. We'll talk later. That's the only one I can tell you in church. And they were all silly and bizarre like that because that's the point. Crazy reasons that people get divorced. But it did raise a thought in my mind. We really understand what really causes marriages to fail or relationships to fail. We really don't understand what causes love and commitment to die. One of the most heartbreaking things that I experience in ministry is witnessing people stand in front of me and a congregation of friends and in front of God and make a promise that they will love and honor and cherish one another for, long, for as long as they both shall live. And then just a few years later to be sitting with that same couple in sessions where they are full of mistrust and dislike for one another. What causes that? What cools love in relationships? You see, we think marriage is in because someone had an affair or someone is a closet alcoholic or someone secretly lost a ton of money or somebody roots for the New England Patriots, which would be my reason for ending the relationship. But <clears throat> but those events are really just the catastrophic final implosion of the relationship. Here, I think, is the stark truth. Love dies between us because of what we refuse to kill within us. Love dies between us because of what we refuse to put to death in our own hearts. Jesus one time said, Whoever wants to follow Me, whoever wants to be My disciple, must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and come after Me, or follow Me. Everyone understood that message in Jerusalem in the first century. If you saw someone carrying their cross, you knew that person was on their way to die. And what Jesus was saying is, if your relationship to Me is going to last, there are things about you that have to die. And you have to be the executioner. And you've got to kill them over and over and over again. See, the Bible says that we're all living sacrifices. And the crazy thing about living sacrifices is they always want to crawl off the cross. And so if you want to be in relationship with Christ, you have to kill something about yourself and you have to do it over and over again. And I believe the same is true in our marriage relationships. If our love is going to live, if relationships are going to last, then there's something in us, in my heart, that I have to constantly be warring against something in me that has to die. If I want love to last, something has to be put to death. And I have to do it over and over again. Are you all with me on this? Okay, if that's true, for the next five weeks, then we're going to be talking with you about things that have to die in order for your love to live. Things that you have to put to death if you want relationships to last. And we've chosen five to focus on. Today I'm going to talk to you about your expectations that you bring to the relationship. Specifically, I'm going to talk about one expectation that has to take center stage. Next week we'll talk to you about secrets that we keep from one another. 
And then we'll talk about the habit we have of giving one another the leftovers. And then I'm going to talk to you about putting to death bitterness and unforgiveness in a relationship. And then the last week that we're in this series, I'm going to talk to you about the tyrant child. I hope you'll all be here that Sunday morning. We're going to have a lot of fun together. If your relationship is going to last, the tyrant child has to die. I hope that nobody from the government's listening right now. But, but the first one is expectations. Do you guys remember what you wore on the day that you were married? I got married in the 1980s, so in the 1980s, white tuxedos were mandatory. Every guy had to wear a white tuxedo to their marriage. And that was, that was bad enough, by the way. They should outlaw white tuxedos, in my opinion. But that, that was bad enough. But then Jenny decided that our um, accent color would be Daphne Rose, which is just a really bad way of saying pink. Pink was our accent color. So um, I had to wear a white tuxedo, and on top of that, I had to wear a pink cummerbund. This was 1986, folks. White tuxedo, pink cummerbund. I told you now, I look like a gay marshmallow. And, uh, and the problem is they took all kinds of pictures of it, so that can still be used to blackmail me for the rest of my life. I bring it up because no matter what you wore to your wedding, along with the official outfit that everyone could see, all of us were wearing another something that nobody could see, but it was there. All of you had a backpack full of expectations of the person that you were getting married to. A backpack full of dreams and desires and expectations that you had for the person that you were marrying. And when you slipped your ring onto their finger, you also shifted your backpack of expectations onto their shoulders. And it becomes a burden that your spouse has to carry throughout your relationship. In other words, you said, I do because I said I do because I thought you would. That's why we got into this relationship. And it brings to the, to, the, to the fore the heart of the problem in our relationships is that we see marriage as a contract and God sees it as a covenant. And there's a huge difference. Contracts are quid pro quo. I will if you do. I said I do because I thought you will. That's how we work this relationship. It's all about that. But covenants are all about sacrifice. No covenant is ever sealed unless there's sacrifice. And so, this is what we want to talk to you about. Making that shift in your expectations of your marriage relationship to go from seeing it as a contract that you've made with this person you're walking through life with and seeing it more as a covenant that you made with them and with God the day that you said, I do. So let's start here. Let's look at Ephesians and let me share why our expectations are usually not biblical. Starting at verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, which he is the Savior. And then dropping down to verse 31, Paul finishes it up this way. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, this, this, this passage is full of all kinds of words that create a visceral uh, response to us in, in the culture we're living in today. Words like submit and other words. Can just We have a knee-jerk kind of reaction to those words. But Ephesians is a profound book. In fact, Paul says this is a profound mystery. 
that I'm sharing with you. And what he's saying is if you're going to understand this, you really need to slow down and you need to pay attention and listen, listen very carefully and read very deeply and maturely and think about this stuff because this is profound. Think deeply. Think maturely about this. And the problem is we don't know how to do that anymore. Or at least we don't want to do that anymore. We read one line. We focus on one word. And half of us, we see the word submit. We're ready to light the torches and sharpen the pitchforks. Storm the gates of the church. And Then the other half, they hear the word submit and you all are half ready to shout out your chauvinistic, Amen, Pastor. Tell her how to behave herself because I'm too big a chicken to do it when you're not around. So I'm going to tell you folks that this passage demands understanding, not knee-jerk reactions. So let's think. I'm not saying that you won't still be mad at me when it's over, but at least know why you're mad at me, okay? Ephesians is primarily a letter about Jesus and His church. That's the primary purpose of the whole letter. Paul spends the whole first three chapters on the doctrine of God's church. And then, in chapter 4, verse 1, he begins to make a change. He says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you received. In other words, I've been talking to you about a calling. You've been called into relationship with Christ. You're a part of His bride and His church. So... Start letting that affect how you live your life. This is true. So now, this is how you should live. So here's the first thought I want you to carry home with you today. Your faith is worthless if it doesn't change your relationships. If it doesn't affect and, in fact, control your relationship, it's worthless. And I say that because I have witnessed firsthand preachers and professors and Bible thumpers who are zealous about their doctrine and passionate defenders of of their theology and they'll fight to death over the second coming and and over the appropriate use of the gifts of the Spirit and over doctrines like the predestination. And, And they're all about that, but they are awful husbands and they are awful wives and they are neglectful and abusive to the children in their homes. So let's just say this. If your faith doesn't control how you treat your husband or wife, if your beliefs don't determine how you raise your kids, if your faith doesn't work at home, it doesn't work. Don't export it. If your faith doesn't work at home, it doesn't work. Don't export it. That's the emphasis of the entire second half of this letter. So Paul writes in verse 32 and 33, um, this is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ in the church. We wish that he would just leave it in the mystery category like, yeah, that's, that's very profound and it's very mysterious, so we really can't do much about it. But Paul won't stop there. He says, however, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself and you wives must respect their husbands. Oh, well, that's not so mysterious, is it? We all can figure out how to do that. I'm teaching you about the church, but this should control how you relate to your spouse. Okay. That brings to the surface two really huge problems for us. And the first one is, we don't look to the Bible for the foundation of our relationships. Paul is teaching husbands and wives how to relate to one another. And wonder of wonders, he quotes the Scripture. In verse 31, he says, For this reason a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and they too will become one flesh. Well, you know where that comes from. Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. Can you believe it that somebody still thinks the book of Genesis is relevant for us? He goes back and quotes the Scripture. 
Genesis chapter 2, verse 25 is a passage of primary reference. What that means is, if you want to understand what God intended when He instituted the marriage relationship, that's the verse you ought to go to. This is the place that you ought to measure all other teachings against when you're thinking about marriage. So our basic problem is, we don't look to Scripture as our source for learning how to be a husband or a wife or a parent to our children. Instead, we listen to our favorite podcast. We go to our favorite YouTube channel. We read our favorite blog. Or we talk to our favorite counselor. Or we talk to our friends. God help us. We're prepared to look for direction from everyone and everywhere other than the Scripture. Now some of you say, well now, Pastor Jack, wait a minute, wait a minute. I read the Bible. I believe the Bible. I mean, I do that and I want to do what is right. Well, great. But that leads us to our second problem. The second problem is we don't understand the Scripture. It isn't difficult to see, folks, why this passage would be offensive to anyone in the year 2021. Paul calls for submission. So every feminist in the room is angry. And he describes marriage as being between a man and a woman. So all the non-gender conforming and LGBTQ activists are upset. Now they start redlining. And then he talks about one husband, one wife... So, so he's pushing this heteronormative ideology and so every social justice warrior in the room is upset at this point and ready to rumble. Scripture will never set well with those groups. But for us, let me point this out. Let me point this out. The people that Paul wrote this letter to were probably more outraged than you are. They were probably more angry than anybody in 2021 would be. Because Paul is putting forward an approach to marriage that is totally counter-cultural. He starts it off by saying, in verse, well, in verse 31 he says this, For this reason a man will leave his father and his mother, and he will be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Again now, folks, this is from Genesis. This is the way marriage was supposed to be. So look at that. Let's go through that verse again. For this reason a man leaves his father and his mother, and is united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Who leaves? Who leaves? Who's the one walking away from everything and leaving everything behind and making all of the sacrifices in order to form the relationship? Come on, folks. Who leaves? Who does the leaving? The man. The man's the one that's responsible for taking the initiative that way. Folks, let me tell you something. That never happened. That never happened. From the outset, from the very beginning, we did it exactly the opposite of the way that God told us to do it. In every culture, even amongst God's chosen people, it was the wife who had to leave her home. It was the woman who had to give up her family. It was always her that had to make the sacrifices. We never did this the way that God told us to do it. So this is, this is ruffling feathers. Simply reminding people of what the Bible teaches is enough to make a lot of people really angry. There's a ding. I got a ding on that one. (laughs) That was like a great idea, I guess. (laughs) Keep them coming, folks. Instead of amens, we'll do dinglings from now on. So. But Paul doesn't just quote the verse. He's even more radical when he starts applying the verse. It begins right away. He says in verse 21, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That sort of talk makes Paul a raging feminist in the first century. When the Pharisees came to Jesus with a question about marriage, here's the way they ask it. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Did you notice that they never asked what the wife's rights were in the situation? They didn't because she had no rights. 
She was supposed to be submitted to her husband. Period. That's the end of the conversation. But Paul writes, submit to one another. Both of you. Husband and wife. Male and female. You both live in submission. Now, we're going to take some time to look at that in just a few minutes in more detail. But for now, here's the big idea for us. If we are going to have a healthy marriage, we have to base our approach to marriage on what God's Word teaches us. This is the first principle. And listen, God's Word is very often, in fact, I'm going to say almost always, exactly the opposite of what the culture tells you you should do. So, here's a piece of advice you'll never hear from me again. But if you want to know how to be happy in your marriage relationship, go home and watch talk shows. Turn on the TV and watch talk shows, read blogs, read posts, listen to podcasts, listen to them all. This is the last time I'm going to tell you to do this, folks. Do that and then do exactly the opposite of what they're telling you to do. We still engage. Here's, here's something I think. The basic problem is we still intermarriage with selfish expectations. I, whenever somebody asks me if I'll perform their wedding ceremony, we usually go through a few sessions of premarital counseling together. And in the first session, I always ask the same question. I will always say, tell me why you want to marry Joe or why you want to marry Mary. And I only have one rule. You cannot answer, because I love him, because I love her. That's the only answer you're not allowed to give me. And over the years, I have heard hundreds of responses to that question, but I've, I've grouped them up into three categories, three categories of responses. Some people want to get, mar- get married because marriage is a cure for my loneliness. I'm looking for a companion. I'm tired of talking to the cat. I'm frightened because the cat's starting to talk back. <laughs> and, uh, or some people see marriage as just the next step. I'm at a certain stage in life. I'm at a certain age in life. And... I've graduated college and I got a career started. This is what we do. This is the next step. And so I'm ready and I need to do it. And besides, I'm tired of dating. And, and marriage is going to get me out of that. And, and at least if I'm married, I'm going to have a permanent boyfriend or girlfriend and, and a reliable date on Friday nights. And somebody will help me pay the bills and show up and, and cheer for me. And at least in my regular sex, at least I can count on that in a marriage relationship. And then there's another category of responses. Marriage will make me a happier person. <laughs> I try not to laugh out loud when we're in the sessions, but marriage will make me better and happier and more fulfilled or whatever. It, it's, it's the Jerry Maguire syndrome. You guys remember that movie, Jerry Maguire? There's that big scene at the end where Jerry flies home from landing the contract and he rushes into the room and his wife's there with all of her uh, cultish girlfriends and he marches in and he gets her attention and he says, you complete me. Now I'm thinking, it, it's so... Um, What's the word? Wrong! It's wrong! That's the word I'm looking for. All of the women are melting down and I'm going, no, no! It's wrong! Look at this principle again. They too become one flesh. They too, one whole man, one whole woman, get together and become one. Not two half-formed, emotionally needy, incomplete souls who are trying to find someone to fill in the cracks in your life. Two whole individuals. The way I see it is uh, it's kind of like chocolate milk. 
You know, when you got milk is a good thing all by itself. And chocolate is a really good thing all by itself. They never have to get together if they don't want to. They're good all by themselves. But when you mix them together and make chocolate milk, something better happens. Right? That's what God has in mind. Two really good people who really know Him, who are really good on their own, who meet one another and make something better together. This is what God is after. And by the way, that's what Paul calls for when he says submit. Submit is a military term. It's, a, it's, a, it's an army term. It means march in lockstep. Fall in line. Make sure that you're marching together and that your plans are shared plans that line up with one another. It means, it means this. It means I don't enter marriage because I've found someone I think will give me something. It means that I enter marriage when I've found someone that I'm ready to spend the rest of my life giving to. I'm going to say this again. I don't enter marriage to get. I enter marriage to give. That's the difference between a contract and a covenant. Covenants are always about sacrifice. If you're not ready to enter marriage to spend the rest of your life giving to someone, you're not ready for a covenant and you're not ready for marriage. So here's the big, big, that's the big principle. If you haven't found someone that you're ready to lay down your rights for and lay down your life for, if you haven't found a person that you want to invest your life in helping them to grow and develop, then you aren't ready to be married to anybody. Marriage is a commitment to give, not to get. And it only works if both the husband and wife have that perspective. If they enter marriage to be a servant expecting that I will set aside my priorities and my agenda and and it will become our priorities and our agenda. That's the big definition of what it means to submit to one another. Okay then, if that's true, then Paul begins to show us why these expectations are critical. Why biblical expectations are critical. Submit to one another. Again, it's a military term. And strictly, it means just what I said. You march in lockstep. You fall in line. But it also means this. It means you line up and form up to defend against something. That's another thing the military does. They form a defense against something. And so what he's saying is, see yourselves as responsible to support and defend each other. In fact, after he speaks about marriage here, in the very next chapter, he begins to talk about parents and children and how we interact that way. And then in verse 10, he says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in, and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. So this idea has been developing in Paul's mind throughout the whole second half of Ephesians. We're at war. And we need to be battle ready. One of the, if not the primary institution that is under attack in the culture today is the Christian marriage and the Christian family. I mean, it only makes sense, folks. The, the, the first human relationship that God established was the marriage relationship. The relationship between a husband and a wife is the foundational relationship of the entire culture. And when men and women do not know how to keep their promises to one another, the whole culture starts to fall apart. When God wanted to make sure that His creation was managed right, the first move He made was to create a family. And if marriage falls apart, if the family is destroyed, everything else falls apart and everything else is destroyed. When you look at all the chaos in our world, 
If you're troubled by the insanity and the craziness and you wonder what you can do, the first thing that you can do if you want to make a difference in America today, listen now, it's not call the president, it's not petition your local congressperson. You stop asking the president to keep his promises if you don't keep your promises. The first thing that you can do is get your house in order. If you want the country to be better, if you want to make America great again, be a great husband. Be a great wife. This is the first commitment that we make. Before telling Congress to keep their promises, make sure you keep yours. I'm telling you folks, there's no politician that can overcome the rot that sits into creation and communities when people cheat on one another and when they walk away from one another and just don't keep their promises at home. The first thing the devil will attack is the marriage relationship. So Paul says, set yourselves up to defend each other. Set yourself up to defend your home and your commitment to one another. It's critical because you've got enemies outside your marriage. You're in a culture today that denigrates and devalues marriage. In fact, you're in a culture now that considers the idea of one man and one woman together in a lifelong committed relationship, an oppressive hierarchy or patriarchy. An evil construct that should be overthrown. And before we ever dealt with that, um, that overt assault on marriage, we had to contend with the covert attacks of a simple loss of the idea of marriage as a lifetime covenant rather than a contract. That when you stand before God and say, I do, you're not just making a promise to the person that's standing in front of you, you're making a promise to God when you say this. And then along with that, you fight an enemy within your own marriage. And this is probably your greatest enemy. And that's the enemy of your own heart. The enemy of your own evil selfishness. Your unrealistic expectations. I I mentioned that those to you earlier. The idea that I get married in order to get from someone rather than to give to someone. Here's why entering marriage with that mindset mindset, um, is so critical. Verse 25 Uh, Paul says this, Husbands, love your wives, just like Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the Word, so that He could present her to Himself as a radiant church, without stain, without wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. This is one of the most beautiful passages in all of the New Testament. And Paul makes it clear, I'm talking to you about Christ and His church. Paul says that, that Jesus had a picture in His mind of the bride that He wanted. That Christ had a picture of a radiant church, a radiant and lovely bride. And, and I, I think about that and I think all of us kind of intermarriage with pictures like that. Every lady has a picture of the kind of husband that she wants to marry. Every lady has a picture of the kind of father um, and the kind of leader and the kind of family that they'll build together. Every lady has that. I I think most men do. I think every man has a picture of the kind of wife that he wants to have. How she'll share in his dreams and how she'll be a comfort and a cheerleader for him when he goes out to tackle the world. And how they'll share adventures together. I think think men have that picture of someone who'll go on adventures with them. Okay, so just like Jesus, we all have this idea of the kind of marriage that we want to have, the kind of bride or the kind of husband that we want. Well, how did Jesus get that? I mean, you all are a member of the Bride of Christ. If you're a born-again Christian, you are a part of the Bride of Christ. So let me ask you that question. When Jesus came and found you, were you radiant and morally pure and without spot and blemish? Were you a beautiful soul when Jesus found you? 
I'll answer that for you. No, you weren't. You were full of blemishes and you were full of selfishness. You were a mess. Here in the South, we will tell you, you were a hot mess when Jesus found you. Jesus didn't find you radiant and beautiful and without spot or blemish. When Jesus found us, we didn't look at all like the bride that He, that he longed for. We were selfish and stained and consumed with our stupid problems and our sin. Jesus didn't find a radiant bride. Jesus sacrificed to create a radiant bride. He's working to present that bride to Himself. So Paul never says, wives expect this from your husbands, or husbands expect this from your wives. Rather, he says, follow the example of Christ and do this for your husband. Do this for your wife. I've said this before, but I don't reach the level of profound very often. So when I say something smart, I tend to repeat it over and over again. But here's, here's what I want you to understand. We all of us are running around in this culture trying to find our soulmate. Let me save you some time. Your soulmate doesn't exist. We're all of us running around trying to find a soulmate. And here's what you need to know. Soulmates are not discovered. Soulmates are created. You create your soulmate. And the only way it's done is over years of going through marriage together and fighting with one another and forgiving one another and saying I'm sorry and getting over it and moving on and gritting your teeth and keeping your promises. Soulmates are not discovered. Soulmates are created. And so Paul says, be made new in the attitude of your mind. In, in Ephesians 4, he says, put off your old self because your old self is corrupted by these deceitful desires. That's just another way of saying expectations. If we enter marriage and run our relationship based upon selfish expectations that come from our own hearts or from the world rather than from God, those expectations and desires corrupt your marriage and they destroy your life. Now, let me give you a couple of ways I, th- I see it happen. Selfishness, selfish expectations just kill love, period. Um, I switched from DTV a few years ago, and now I'm on Hulu, and Hulu just takes my payment right out of my checking account. They don't even ask me about it. Without even talking to me, they make me pay my bill. And you know what? They've never said thank you, not once. I never get a valentine in the mail from Hulu that says, we are so, so enamored with your on-time payments. It makes us want to hold your hand. That never happens. Are you guys with me here this morning? Nobody, when, when you do what is expected of you, nobody appreciates that. And in the same way, if I foist expectations on my spouse and they simply meet my expectations, then we're just at break even at that point. If you expect her to have sex with you twice a week and she does it, are you grateful for that? Some of you are thinking, twice a week. If you expect him to get up on Saturday and help with the laundry and vacuuming and he does it, has he earned any gratitude from you? No. Because you expected it from him. And he's simply doing what a grown man should know how to do. And we get there because we've turned our relationship into a contract rather than a covenant. Because we're consumers rather than partners. We don't see our marriage as a chance to help the person we're married to to become better, more radiant, more energized. The second thing that expectations do do then is drive a wedge between us rather than pull us together. Because if we feel like we can't measure up to the expectations of the person that we're married to, eventually we just start going and looking someplace else. If a a man feels like he can't live up to the expectations at home, he'll escape to work or to another person who doesn't know him as well. They'll figure him out eventually. 
Or if a woman feels like she can never be interesting enough as a friend, she'll look for other friends. Selfish expectations and cultural desire corrupt our lives. So let's end here. Let's finish this way. What is the appropriate basis then for our marriage? Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. And then he comes down and he says, now as for you husbands, love your wives. Just like Christ loved the church and gave Himself up so that He could present her to Himself, a radiant church. And then He says, in this same way, you husbands, love your wives like your own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. That's Paul's way of saying happy wife, happy life, by the way, fellas. He, loved, he who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just like Christ does for the church. And we are members of His body. All of these, the proper expectation is found again in that word submit. Form up to defend. Become a team. You're in this fight against outside lies and interior selfishness. You battle for one, for one another. Here are some ways I think we do that. First of all, we submit to the Lord. Every directive that Paul gives to the wife, wives submit to your husbands, he qualifies it by saying, as you do to the Lord. Submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord. Well, how did you submit to the Lord? What caused you to be willing to bow down and submit to the Lord? Were you, were you coerced into doing that? Were you intimidated into doing that? Did somebody gaslight you or browbeat you into this relationship with Jesus? No. You submitted to Jesus because you met somebody who loved you supremely. You submitted to Jesus because of grace. Because of how He was willing to sacrifice for you. And so, I, I, I wish that I could just get every unmarried... I'm going to be real careful. Every, every unmarried lady in here and just say this to you. If you haven't found a man who loves you enough to sacrifice for you, don't marry him. If you haven't found someone who hasn't willing to sacrifice for you, then you haven't found someone you can trust to submit to. But I'm going to tell you, I haven't met a wife yet. I haven't met a wife yet who wouldn't submit to a man who loved her like this. And if you have a husband like this, follow his lead encouraging Him in this role. It's the best thing you can do. If we submit to God's directions, we form a strong um, defense of our relationship. So, let me talk to you about this. Ladies, how do you encourage leadership in your home? How do you encourage the man that you're married to uh, to be the leader? And I don't know all of the ways. I I can't even begin to touch on all of this because we're running out of time. But let me give you this. One thing I think that all of you could do is really respect the service that your husband provides. I, I was out one day years ago. I was mowing the lawn. We were living on Seminole and I was mowing the lawn. And now I'm rich and I pay other people to mow my lawn. <laughs> but, but I was out push mowing the lawn one day and it was hot and it was nasty. And, and all of a sudden I'm mowing the front lawn. I hated it. I hate mowing the lawn. And I was complaining, poor little put-upon self, poor slave, jack-out mowing the lawn. Everybody's in there enjoying the air conditioning. I'm the only one that cares. I'm the only one that does anything around here. And Janelle comes walking out of the house with a glass of sweet tea and hands it to me and kisses me on the cheek. And suddenly, I'm like, I love mowing the lawn! And now it's not just about getting the grass short enough that you can see where my cars are parked. Now, I'm doing it because I'm serving this person that I'm married to. All I'm trying to get to, folks, is, ladies, when your husband does, and I'm going to be really politically incorrect here, when he does what a husband is supposed to do, when he leads, when he takes initiative, when he takes the family to church, when he engages the children in conversation, appreciate it, cheerlead it, make a fuss over him. Make a fuss over him. 
Now, you can cross your arms and say, why do I have to do handsprings for a grown man doing what he's supposed to do? When I'm oh, look, he did his dishes. Oh, you're such a man. Now, face it, that's what some of you are doing right now. No! No! He can fold his own clothes. Say amen if you know I'm telling you the truth. And, and that's what you're thinking. You're thinking, I've so got to fuss over the kids. I've got to fuss over him. Well, is that what I've got to do? Well, yes. Yes. And I'm going to tell you why. Because your husband needs you to do it. And I'm just going to tell you ladies this because most men don't have the vocabulary to tell you these things. <laughs> By the way, I'll need an escort. But uh, No, listen, I, most of us guys just don't have the vocabulary to tell you what I'm about to tell you, but we need you to do this for us. We need to know that you're proud of us. We need to know that what we do matters to you and that you see it. Because we do it for you. Listen, ladies, we do it for you. If if you weren't around, the kids would be lucky to eat. (laughs) We do this for you, really. And so so I'm just going to tell you that I think most men who are married need their wives to be a cheerleader for them. Encourage his leadership. Here's, that's the only one I'm going to give you for today for the men. Let's, or let's go to the, or for the ladies. Let's go to the men. Men, you sacrifice for the lady you're married to. Husbands, love your wife just like Christ loved the church and He gave Himself up for her. Gentlemen, the primary responsibility, if you want to be a leader, you've got to sacrifice. You have to be able to sacrifice. Jesus said, the greatest among you has to be the servant of all. The greatest among you has to be the servant of all. So you may want to write this down. The leader always goes last. Always. You ought to be the last guy in the car. Are you holding the door open for the lady you're married to any longer? You ought to be the last guy in the car. You ought to be the last guy in line when it's time to eat. We we read this word head and we get this idea of authority. We automatically think it's about authority. It's not. It's primarily about responsibility. The word in the original means head like the headwaters of a river that supplies the rest of the river. Everything downstream flows from this source. What happens if the source is polluted? Everything downstream is polluted. So guys, listen, if you're polluting yourself with pornography and you're polluting yourself with selfishness and you're polluting your home with profanity and anger and you're bringing that into your house, that's your fault. You are supposed to be the source of what's happening in your home. Paul says, it's your job, it's your responsibility to see the radiance of the person you're married to. He said, Jesus saw a radiant bride. He saw you in all of your mess, but He saw what was radiant about you. And He bled and He sacrificed to pull what was the best out of you. And so I think it's your responsibility to look at the lady that you're married to and see what is good in her, where she's intelligent, where she's skilled, where she's strong, and pull, sacrifice to pull that out of her. It's not about making eyes at her. Folks, they, they live in a lustful world where everybody makes eyeballs them, but do you see them is the question. 
Do you see what's good about them? And do you dedicate yourself to pulling what's good about them out of them? And that means that I'm responsive to her too. He says, love them like you love your own body. You guys, he said, no one ever hated their own body. And we we could argue about that later. But the fact is we don't. And I, I just love this illustration because I tell you folks, I do the same thing every morning. Same routine, get up, go to the same place, make coffee, put the dog out, blah, blah, blah. I could do it with my eyes closed. And one morning I think I tried. And I was walking out of the door. It was dark. I was walking out of the bedroom and I cracked my little toe on the door jamb. Have you ever done that? And, and I'm like, oh my, you know, well, you know, <laughs> words that I should not say. And, and you, but you know, when you crack your little toe, it's just your little toe. It's the smallest, most insignificant part of your body. But I noticed that my whole body responded to that pain. My brow furrowed. My mouth said things I had to repent for. My my hand went to it. My back bent to it. I, I held it. I, if I could have, I'd have kissed it. And that's what, that's what Paul is getting at when he says, treat them like your own body. Be responsive. My little toe didn't say, hey, hands, could you rub me? Or, hey, legs, could you sit down? I sensed it, and I responded to it. Now, you can cross your arms, gentlemen, if you want to, and you can say, what am I supposed to be, a mind reader? If she needs something, all she has to do is say something. If you need something, say something. I'm a contractor, not a mind reader. Well, look, okay, look. You won't get this all right all of the time, but you want to know? Are you supposed to be a mind reader? Yes. Yes. That's your job. You married a woman. And your job is to spend the rest of your life figuring her out. I'm preaching better than y'all are letting on, folks. Okay, so let's close this way. I'm done. Really, I am. What expectations did you carry into your marriage relationship? What expectations are you laying on the shoulder of the person that you're married to that they were never designed to carry for you? Have you accepted that your husband is your first and most important ministry? Have you accepted that your wife is your first and most important ministry? What if you begin to think that? I think it would be a whole new way of approaching things. Not long ago, well, it's been a few years back, I was listening to a gentleman talk and he shared a a vision that he had. And I'm not a big visions guy, but this one caught my attention. He said in this vision, God was ushering him around a house that had a lot of different rooms in it. And in every one of these rooms, there was a group of people who could no longer bend their arms. Now, there was food in the room. There were bowls in front of all of them full of food, but they were starving to death. They were emaciated and angry with one another, and nobody could eat because their arms wouldn't bend until he got to a certain room. And when God opened the door, everybody there was happy. Everybody was fed. Everybody was laughing and enjoying one another's company. And he said he asked God, what, what made the difference in this room? And God said, in this room, they've learned that they can feed one another. That's going to make all of the difference in your home too. Why don't you all pray with me?